0: Listen to all of Weill Cornell Medicine's informative podcasts at weillcornell.org slash podcasts. Welcome to Weill Cornell Medicine CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today's topic is early detection of acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. My guest today is Dr. Pinkle Desai. Dr. Desai is a hematologist and medical oncologist at the Weill Cornell Medicine Leukemia Program. She specializes in the treatment of acute leukemia, myelodysplastic syndrome, and myeloproliferative disorders. We're excited today to talk about Dr. Desai's latest study, which was recently published in Nature Medicine. This study was the first of its kind to demonstrate the relationship between specific gene mutations and the risk of developing acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. This data uh, suggests that we may be able to uncover the potential to predict disease risk up to a decade before onset of actually manifesting leukemia. So this is a, a very exciting new development. Pinkle, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me here.
0: So I, I would like to start off by uh, obviously, acute leukemia is a uh, challenging disease. It's a very uh, exciting disease scientifically, but obviously clinically uh, has with it uh, a lot of challenges in taking care of patients, and obviously a very serious illness for for many people. Tell us a little bit about how you found yourself drawn to working in in the leukemia field.
1: Sure. So when I started doing my fellowship and was getting my first exposure to oncology, what drew me to um, acute leukemia is the patients. Um, I found that taking care of patients with acute leukemia was intensely satisfying. They do come very sick um, into the hospital, and you develop a very deep relationship with them quickly. Um, And it's very... um, very, very satisfying to help them go through different phases of treatment, be part of a very intense, close um, team. And the science of the disease is also very um, fascinating.
0: Before we get into the specifics of your study, which I find uh, very uh, exciting, I think it's important to understand a little bit about uh, acute myeloid leukemia or AML, and obviously, um, you know, there are many types of leukemia, and some people in our audience may be quite familiar, but others uh, less so. Just in a nutshell, maybe if you could give uh, a little bit of background as to what is AML, um, why is it so difficult to treat in many cases, and kind of the, the usual course um, for for patients with AML before we get into the specifics of your study.
1: So acute myeloid leukemia is a cancer of the bone marrow, where the basic pathology is that there is a proliferation of immature cells in the bone marrow that keeps on occupying more and more space. So the normal cells that are supposed to make the red cells and the white cells and platelets, um, they don't have um, a way to manufacture them, and it leads to a bone marrow failure state. Um, So patients present with, um, most of the time, low blood counts, and at the same time, they could have a high white cell count, which is basically all of these leukemia cells or immature cells that are released into the circulation, but you certainly can have patients who have nothing seen on the blood. But when we look inside the bone marrow, by doing a bone marrow biopsy, we find these abnormal proliferation of cells. These cells lose their ability to um, manufacture normal cells, and they get stuck at that immature stage, um, causing the, the phenotype of the disease. It's a very challenging disease and and one that is tough to treat um, because by definition, everyone's leukemia is different. In the old days, you know, we didn't have very complicated and very sophisticated ways of measuring the um, underlying genetics of of leukemia. Uh, But now we know that The signature of one person's leukemia is very different than someone else's. And the more complicated aspect of it is that it's a very heterogeneous disease to begin with. So it's not that AML is completely made up of one clone of cells. There might be several at the same time. And you have to try to clean all of these out in order to cure a patient. Um, When they come in to the clinic or into the hospital, the treatments of leukemia are also challenging. In a young patient, um, usually that would include um, pretty intensive chemotherapy and a hospitalization of about a month. And majority of the younger patients would need a bone marrow transplant in order to maximize their chances of cure. In older patients, many times they are not able to go through such transplants, and in which case the goal of treatment is to get them into remission and try to keep them there. But we do not cure the majority of older patients with AML. And even in younger patients, there is still a risk of relapse, even though they go through a stem cell transplant. So as a disease not only do we have we have constant challenges of how to best target this disease with combinations of leukemias or other targeted drugs but also to prevent the relapse that is very high in in a lot of patients
0: so i think it's uh, a great explanation of a of a complicated topic and you alluded to the genetics of leukemia and in part i think because it's been so easy in researching leukemia and studying leukemia that you have easy access to the cells, whether it's the blood or the bone marrow, there's been a tremendous amount of the genetics um, that have been studied and and explain or at least correlate with the different outcomes. And we're gonna get to your specific study in a second, which is largely based on those genetics in part. But tell us a little bit about the the spectrum of genetics in patients with AML, um, in the big picture, obviously not specific genes, but just a sense of kind of how many genetic mutations and 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 how different patients can have uh in can be in their genetic profile.
1: So the one thing I wanted to clarify is that when we talk about genetics or genomics of leukemia, these are not gene abnormalities that people are born with. Um, There are some familial leukemias where um, there is something that people are born with that make them high risk for developing leukemia, but that is an exceedingly small percentage of leukemia patients. The genomics of leukemia are disease related mutations. So these are gene abnormalities that are present within the leukemia clone and not outside the leukemia clone. And when we do a very deep sequencing of these leukemia cells, you can have over 200 individual genes that could be mutated in patients with leukemia. And moreover, there could be combinations of genes. So you can have a patient with five genes that are mutated versus just one. And it absolutely matters what these gene mutations are. When we talk about prognosis of AML or the risk of this leukemia coming back in the future, that is completely dependent on two big uh, factors. One is the chromosomal abnormalities, which are big um, arrangements in in uh, chromosomes um, in our in the leukemia clone. And the second is individual gene mutations that are within the DNA. And both these in combination help us determine which leukemia patient is more likely to relapse versus not. And you can generally, in a ballpark um, way, estimate the relapse risk as low, intermediate, or high. But it's very complicated because you have to take into consideration all of these 200 genes in various combinations to come up with some kind of a score that Mm -hmm. helps us understand what is the risk. And this is important because if somebody has a low risk of relapse, then we would not transplant these patients. But if they have an intermediate or a high risk of relapse, then we strongly consider stem cells transplant or a bone marrow. Transplant in order to maximize the chance of cure for these patients.
0: So, tell us a little bit about your recent study, which has gotten a lot of attention, and Nature medicine is really one of the leading translational scientific uh, journals in the field. So I think that speaks to the importance of these findings. Tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do uh, in these uh, studies that you you were performing
1: so one of the things that was of major um, interest to um, um, to myself and uh, the leukemia program at Wild Cornell Medicine in general was could you perhaps identify patients who are at risk of developing leukemia? And we're not talking about an inborn, like genetic risk, but something that people acquire over time. Um, so if you ha- if you consider other um, cancers, there are certain cancers where there exists a pre-malignant um, state. For example, in uterine, uterine cancer, it's the most common, or breast cancer, where you can have like this pre-malignant state that increases the the risk of um, the cancer in the future. Such a thing was not known in in AML. Um, there was no known genomic state that exists many, many years before that can help us understand what this patient will go through. many about a few years ago, there was this concept that um, was floated around that patients who are healthy and do not have a bone marrow disease, could have an acquired genetic mutation. So they're not born with it, but some mistakes happen over time as patients age, and you can detect certain mutations. But nobody knew whether these mutations are definitely tied to uh, AML risk. So we were able to identify in this study where we did a big epidemiologic um, study and did a um, genomic analysis of patients who were diagnosed with leukemia, about 200 of them, and we were able to get blood samples on them 10 years before the diagnosis and compare it with people who never developed leukemia and had blood drawn also at the same time. And we found um, that There is absolutely a difference uh, in people who had leukemia where we found an excess of these mutations about four times higher um, odds of having a mutation 10 years before diagnosis compared to people who never developed uh, uh, leukemia. More importantly the risk is different depending on the mutation we're looking at. So just having any mutation does increase the risk of leukemia. But within that um, general statement, there is a a panel of what we call high-risk genes where the risk of leukemia is extremely high, sometimes 50 times higher than than, uh, somebody who did not have that particular mutation. This is an important finding because one, it establishes that you can identify normal people who have a risk of leukemia in the future, because we used to believe that leukemia just happens suddenly. You know, you develop something, uh, the bone marrow starts proliferating these bad cells, and within weeks, you make the diagnosis of AML. To, to have something that could potentially be identifiable as a risk, 10 years before, opens up a huge research area because now we can we can know who will get it. And perhaps there is a way to monitor and intervene so that these people don't get AML.
0: So I, I think this is obviously very early, um, but very exciting. And I think you highlight that you can you know, uh, potentially, and I highlight the potential because obviously there's a lot more work to do. Um, the potential of identifying a person who might have a significantly higher risk in the future of getting leukemia. So, let's maybe play along with me a little bit and recognizing that there's a lot of um, dots to connect and um, you know, validation and interventions. And we often say that, well, just because we know there's a problem doesn't mean we have a solution to the problem. But in the big picture, what does that mean for a patient? So if a, a patient had a blood test and let's say it's a healthy person and their risk of leukemia in the highest risk group based on this study you know, would be fifty times normal risk. Is that is that kind of the highest risk group? Yes. What What does that mean in real terms? Is that a one in a hundred chance? Is that a one in a thousand chance? What What would that, so, as best you could estimate?
1: So, I'd like to stress that leukemia is still a rare disease. Mm-hmm. So, the vast majority of patients do not get um, leukemia. And on an average, there's about twenty thousand new diagnoses of leukemia per year in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, And the concept here is we certainly do not want to, based on on this study, just start intervening on these patients Mm -hmm. because there is still people who will never get leukemia even though they have the mutation. So what would makes sense, though, is that depending, so certain mutations, for example, for in the study, um, just to quote a couple mutations, the TP53 and the IDH mutations carried the highest risk of leukemia. And at least in our study, everybody we identified with this mutation developed the disease down the line. Um, obviously, this needs to be validated. And actually, there, there was another study that looked at it similarly, um, and also found that these mutations carry a much higher risk than the others. What this would mean for a patient if they come into the clinic right now with these mutations is I would definitely favor a close monitoring program um, for these patients. We also found as part of the study that it's we can find these mutations, first of all, 10 years ahead of time. So there is not a push to, you know, do something right the moment where they are identified, but they have to be monitored. I think that is an increasingly um, common thing to do now when we find these mutations. And what we found also is that if the percentage of the mutation in the blood keeps on increasing over time, then there is an actual trend as to when the leukemia might happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where for the immediate um, sort of impact of the study, that's where it would be impactful Mm -hmm. that in the past we would tell them, you know, we don't know what this means and you don't have a disease. And there was no real, you know, push or um, data to suggest that we should monitor these people. Um, But I think with this data, close monitoring would be warranted. As to whether you know you know you can actually do something to prevent this is a big area of research that needs to be done. Mm-hmm.
0: So, as you know well, and maybe some in the audience knows, one of the big risk factors out there for getting AML is another cancer and treatment for other cancers. So, for instance, the scenario of getting chemotherapy or certain types of chemotherapy for breast cancer, as an example, uh, or say, radiation for for other conditions, those might be a risk factor for ultimately later developing uh, an AML. Do you envision the possibility that one might, before, let's say, someone treated a patient for some other medical problem, some other cancer, um, that one might screen for these uh, mutations and therefore perhaps not use radiation or not use certain chemotherapies because of a higher risk of getting? Is there a link there? Or are those these two separate phenomenon that you wouldn't potentially connect those dots? So
1: that's a great point. And I think everybody is pushing to this concept that in a normal healthy population, if you can predict the, you know, or not quite predict, but at least identify people who have a higher risk of AML, if you increase the likelihood of developing leukemia in the population, which would exactly be people who have had another cancer or or chemotherapy, um, potentially uh, these are the people you would want to monitor more closely. Now, I want to be cautious Mm -hmm. about saying that Uh, screening for these mutations before treatment of their other cancer, for example, breast cancer or lung cancer or something, that should we change the management of that primary tumor based on the presence of this mutation? At this point, I would advise that that is not the way we would envision it for the moment because you have to make sure that the kind of treatments that cure that cancer you we maximize that. We cannot not give something that impacts their survival from that tumor um, in order for a future risk of, of AML. So I do completely agree that these are the people we should be monitoring and there there is there will be a push um, to do that, but not change management at the moment. I think that this calls for a prospective monitoring of these patients and understanding if these mutations change over time, before and after chemotherapy for the primary tumor. And once this relationship is established that perhaps giving chemotherapy for another cancer brings on and a more complex mutation down the line compared to what was screened before, mm-hmm. um, there there may be trials that would focus then on saying can we avoid chemotherapy? But but I, I do have to um, make um, make this point that all of this has to be in conjunction with our solid tumor oncologist, because you certainly don't want their, um, their primary solid tumor, for example, to be uh, not treated well because of a future risk.
0: So I'll give you one or two other scenarios that, that come to mind that might be practical, and I'm recognizing that you're speculating. A bone marrow donor for a family member who had one of these uh, mutations, do you envision screening donors and perhaps not using such individuals as donors or where where do you think that fits?
1: I think I do envision that mm-hmm. um, because when you're thinking about a leukemia patient who is going to go through a, a very intense procedure like a stem cell transplant, you do want the, the donor cells to be in the best shape. And if there is a, a, a mutation that increases risk of leukemia, you don't want to potentially use that for a patient who already is going to be immunocompromised because of the transplant. And there's actually some data that does suggest that if the donor has any kind of these mutations, Not, I'm not necessarily talking about the high-risk mutations, that there is delayed engraftment and potentially more low blood counts in the recipient of mm-hmm. the stem cell transplant. So I do think that that is um, a, a field where it, this needs to be explored more, and I personally would envision that such a strategy would be in use, because think about it, you know, this, the, the, these mutations are not that uncommon. Um, if you look at patients or or any part um people over 60 years old you can find uh, some not the high risk mutations but any mutation in about you know 10 to 15% of the general population so potentially 10% of your donors carry a mutation and you'd mm-hmm. rather have somebody who does not
0: right and and finally you you emphasize that these were acquired mutations rather than uh, inherited mutations so at this point, it seems that one wouldn't expect, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one wouldn't expect, so, for instance, the scenario of a patient with leukemia has family members, has children that might be worried about their risk of leukemia. this would not be a strategy appropriate for them or or would it be something that might potentially ultimately be useful?
1: That is correct. this is not this is an acquired genetic abnormality or mutation, so, Patients who have this or or people, general healthy people who have this mutation does not mean that their children are going to have this. This is a normal process of aging. So as people age, you know, just statistically, there is is a very high likelihood that some You know, a problem happens in cell divisions and a mutation develops and certain mutations will have a higher risk of AML while certain don't. But it is absolutely a normal process of aging. And it doesn't mean that if one person has it, their family members need to be immediately screened because that has no relevance to it.
0: So before we wrap up, just a a minute or two on kind of where you're where you're going from here. Where does this research lead us? Um, Clearly, we've touched on a number of different directions you and your colleagues could pursue, but what are the kind of high priority next steps from your perspective?
1: So I think the first step is um, we we want to and need to establish a prospective monitoring strategy um, for patients. normal, healthy people who have this mutation, you could perhaps focus it on people who have had previous chemotherapy because their risk of leukemia is higher. And at some point, with a lot of collaboration from multiple institutions, envision an intervention strategy. But that will require much more research on what intervention strategy and will it be successful. But I think the first step is to actually do this prospectively. Since our study was based on a retrospective, um, you know group of uh, of, uh, uh, patients. Uh, The second thing is that there is also a lot of research that's needed on people who have the mutation and don't develop leukemia because something is different in their uh, just not just the presence of the type of mutation, but there might be some other factors that um, that somehow is protective for that patient versus not. So there's more research needed in that area um, as well to maximize the chances of us identifying which patient will and which patient won't develop leukemia. Because ultimately, it's all about the, the the absolute risk, right? If we know that someone is guaranteed to develop leukemia, then it's easier to think that perhaps you can intervene. But if there's like a 50-50 chance, you still would not want to give potentially, you know, drugs that might have side effects in order to prevent a disease that may or may not happen.
0: Well, this has been a great discussion. I've I've learned a lot. And I think that uh, it's a great example of the importance of patients participating in translational science. And, you know, you start with a question around just can you detect traces or risks of leukemia years a- ahead of time? And then you end up with so many potentially important clinical questions and strategies that obviously there's a lot of work to do, but uh, potentially a very big impact. So I give you and your colleagues a lot of credit and, and really thank you for, for joining us today. It's a great example of the translational work going on here uh, at Wow Cornell. So thank you for joining us, Pinkle. Thank you. So I want to, again, invite the audience uh, to download, subscribe, rate, and review CancerCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or online at wowcornell.org. We also encourage you to write to us at cancercast at med.cornell.edu with questions, comments, and topics you'd like to see us cover more in depth in the future. That's it for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thanks for tuning in. If you or a loved one is undergoing cancer treatment, rehabilitation medicine can help with recovery and ease painful side effects. Listen to Back to Health. While Cornell Medicine's podcast series dedicated to rehabilitative medicine, to learn more about the ways psychiatrists can help.